partly for me in writing, it's about learning to get out of my own way and to learn to listen to some other voice inside me that seems to have a little bit more power and volition and clarity than I have in my everyday life. I feel like my my writer self sometimes knows a lot more than my everyday self does. And I don't always feel like a very articulate person or very clear-headed. I'm, I'm a bit muddled in my everyday life, but somehow when I commit to the process of writing, when it's good and I allow it to come through me, then something interesting and clear comes out, which I would never be able to do on my own. Catherine Tema Davidson is a novelist, essayist, poet, and teacher of writing. She grew up in Los Angeles and settled in London. Our conversation delves into Catherine's creative process and her interest in exploring how culture shapes one's worldview and what happens when we cross cultures. Catherine talks about the multicultural environment in which she was raised, her comfort with a mixed meze approach, and why it is that she feels more Californian living in London than she ever did when she was living in the United States. Catherine also gives us a glimpse into the autobiographical novel on which she is currently working and discusses why, in the aftermath of Brexit, she has come to feel more connected to a larger community in England. I'm Diane McDaniel, and this is Real. Catherine, thank you for joining me today. It's such a pleasure to be able to chat with you about your work and about creativity. Great. I love being here talking to you, Di. Thank you. All right. So let's begin by just exploring the idea of creativity. What does the word creativity or the thought of creativity mean to you? Okay. Well, that's such a big question to start with. Yeah, it is. And uh, (laughs) it's hard to answer that without sounding really pretentious. Um, but I think that when I really think about what that, that means to me, uh, creativity is about being open to the new and uh, letting yourself become a place where new insights, new ideas, um, new perspectives might arrive. That's what I think of as creativity. Right, absolutely. And, and you think of your work as, as creative work, don't you? Well, yeah. I mean, the work that I do, uh, my writing work is creative work, or at least I try to, you know, allow it to become creative. Um, but my teaching work is also really creative. I think that um, you and I worked together as teachers a long time ago, and I think that that was always an exciting thing about it. Um, when you come to the classroom, there's always an opportunity for something new to arise and to respond to the moment. And I think that maybe is creative as well. You're responding to whatever has happened, whatever is changing, whatever is going on in that moment. And uh, I think that um, you're making something new happen. And I think that there's an opportunity for that with teaching as well as writing. And um, so I think about both of my aspects of work as creative yeah 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 absolutely well and let's go back a little bit and tell me a little bit about yourself as a child and how you expressed yourself creatively 
Yeah, so I grew up in L.A. Uh, I went to an alternative hippie school in the Valley called Oakwood. And Oakwood was all about creativity. Um, it was a school where instead of learning to read and write, uh, with the emphasis was on self-expression. And I, I always like to say, well, I couldn't spell my own name until I was eight, but I did learn how to make a Hopi Kachina doll. <laughs> So, oh, I think Oakwood was a great environment and it, it nurtured a lot of artists and a lot of writers and a lot of the parents came from the creative industries and um, the teachers were very supportive of exploring your own expression and your interaction with the world and we did a lot of fun projects and then uh, I ended up going the polar opposite and I went to... Westlake School for Girls, because I thought, well, maybe I should learn some self-discipline. And uh, that was felt very rigid. And I ended up sort of somewhere in the middle in the state school system. I went to Beverly Hills High School. And I ran a literary magazine there. And I was in the backpacking club. And um, I guess I was a bit of a hippie child. So a little bit of a wild child. Yeah. And you've brought it into your uh, adult um, adult world as well. Yeah, definitely. When I left California and went to the East Coast, I discovered what a true Californian I really was. I think when I lived here, I always thought I was sort of a sophisticated East Coaster at heart. And then when I got to the East Coast, I realized, no, I'm actually a wild Californian. I think for me, California, it's not just a place, but it's also a kind of idea and I think for me, the idea of Californianness um, for me is about, again, being open to new things and new ways of doing things, um, kind of anti-hierarchical, informality, um, playfulness. And I think I realized I had all of that inside me when I got to the East, which I felt was a little bit more traditional. And mm-hmm. I realized, no, that's not me. I'm not that person. And then, of course, later on, I went to England. And I became even more California. I think if I moved to Berkeley, I probably would have become really straight-laced and <laughs> buttoned up. You need contrast. Resistant, yeah. So I think uh, for me, my Californian nature became a kind of part of my identity that it might not have become if I'd stayed in L.A. Oh, yeah. yeah. I can say that for sure. Well, so uh, you're a writer is sort of where you, you landed in terms of uh, your self-expression. And uh, you write uh, poetry, f- fiction, and uh, essays. Yeah. And I wanted just to hear a little bit about the relationship between those different uh, genres and how you sort of uh, work with the different uh, modes of writing. Yeah, so I think I started out thinking about myself as a poet and I wrote poetry when I was a kid and in fact my first poems came out of my California experience when I was at Oakwood and we went to the Mojave Desert and we were sent on this amazing field trip where we went to a monastery and we had to keep silent from sundown to sunrise and then we went on a hike in the desert and went to an oasis and we were given notepads and it was so exciting to sort of experience the world through words and the intensity of that experience produced my first poetry. Poetry was really important to me for a long time. And then I think for me, it's just whatever question is on your mind, that's what you end up writing about. So a poem is a great way to kind of explore one moment or one insight, 
poems, of course, you can rewrite them over and over again. They can, you know, evolve over years. Um, but then I had a story I wanted to tell, and it started out with one thing. It started out as an essay, and then it became a short story, and then it became a novel. Um, and I'm never quite sure how things are going to evolve. And then recently I've been writing a lot of essays, and I think it's probably a matter of being a busy mother and teacher. Um, an essay is very satisfying. You know, you kind of can have one idea and really pursue it. And it's got a beginning, middle, and end. And um, it's a really kind of, I don't know, pleasurable form. Mm -hmm. It kind of seems a little bit more bounded than a novel, which can seem kind of scary and large and endless, and you can get lost in it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. They take a long time to write. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your creative process, um, how you work, and what inspires you to keep going? Yeah, so that's a good question. I think that what inspires me to keep going is the desire to solve the problem. So whatever I'm working on at a particular moment, it's my own curiosity and I think my own desire to figure out what it is that wants to be said. Not mm -hmm. that what I want to say, because sometimes what I want to say is not really what ends up wanting to be said. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I feel like partly for me in writing, it's about learning to get out of my own way and to learn to listen to some other voice inside me that seems to have a little bit more power and volition and clarity than I have in my everyday life. Mm. I feel like my, my writer self sometimes knows a lot more than my everyday self does. And I don't always feel like a very articulate person or very clear-headed. I'm, I'm a bit muddled in my everyday life. But somehow, when I commit to the process of writing, when it's good and I allow it to come through me, then something interesting and clear comes out, which I would never be able to do on my own. Right. So it sort of surprises you. It totally surprises me. And I, I love that quote by Robert Frost. Um, you know, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. I really think the best writing does surprise you. And that's so satisfying. And that, I think, having been published and then sometimes not getting published, and it is kind of a momentary thrill to get published, and it's always wonderful to find readers. But what really keeps you going is your desire to solve the problem and to find out what what's in there. So interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so how does that differ in the novel writing that you do versus the essay writing that you do? Yeah. So the novel writing is, uh, you know, the great quote by E.L. Doctorow, you know, writing a novel is like mapping a country with the aid of a small flashlight. <laughs> um, you know, it can be done, but it takes a long time. And I think that there's a lot more stumbling in the dark with novel writing whereas I think with an essay it's much more somehow you kind of see in front of you the goal where you're trying to go there's a question you want to explore or an idea comes to you and you think yeah okay that's a good insight it's a bit like a poem you know mm -hmm. oh something clicks inside you and you think there it is so it's 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 easier to chase it mm -hmm. um, and even if you you know revise it several times you kind of I think you're much more bounded. 
um, by the insider, the idea that you have. Whereas with novel writing, I think you can veer in a lot of directions and that can be scary. Mm. You know, a character can take over. Um, (laughs) They're alive in there. They are. And in fact, I was reading today a New York Times book review of a new novel, first time novelist. And I think the novel is called My Absolute Darling. And the guy who wrote it, he's a first time novelist, but it took him many years to get to the final form. And the characters that he wrote about started out as side characters in a much more voluminous story. And then when he realized those were the characters he really needed to write about, he said it really terrified him. Mm. Like, oh no, oh my God, I have to write about these characters. Mm. And uh, I think there's, you know, a lot of writers talk about that, that kind of sense of you're not really in charge here. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, And that can be scary. And so do you start with an outline when you sit down to do a novel? How how do you, how much do you Mm. know ahead of time? Well, that sounds like I'm such an expert novel writer, Rose. I think, you know, I've written two or three. um, But I think for me, being a poet, maybe, I start with an image and uh, a sense of maybe a scene or a story, a sense that there's something there, a story that needs to be told. And I think like with the one I'm working on now, that started as a voice. So, and that was kind of interesting because I didn't intend to write the book, but I think the voice just started speaking in my head one morning. Mm. I was like, okay, I think I better make room for the voice. And what's happened to me with this novel is that I really feel like when I'm, I veer away from the voice, I can really tell. And I, the voice seems to have a lot of uh, power and volition. Mm-hmm. So it seems to have a very strong The voice is, story is pulling tell. you along. You're following. It totally. Yeah. The voice is pulling me along. Right. So you were uh, born and raised in Los Angeles, as you mentioned, and you uh, spent time in New England. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for the past almost 25 years, you've been living in London. Yeah. How has settling in a different culture from where you were raised influenced your mm. writing? Mm. Well, I think that's been the really big challenge of my life. Um, I'm a very embedded person, as you know, um, I'm someone who connects really well with my family, my friends. Um, I felt very, I wasn't someone with a lot of kind of uh, alienation from my environment. I felt very connected to my environment. But um, moving to England, taking on a set of cultural mores, a kind of historical background, points of view, um, that has been really challenging for me. And... Um, it's taken a long time, but I think ultimately doing that has really expanded my sense of what it means to be a human being, if that doesn't sound too pretentious. Mm. I think it's um, given me a double perspective, which I find really amazing and flexible. So I can look at America through the lens of England, I can look at England through the lens of America, and uh, I'll ultimately realize that so much of the way that we see the world is culturally defined and um there are always other perspectives and broader perspectives to take on board you get to be kind of an insider outsider yeah outsider insider outsider is perfect for a writer yeah (laughs) yeah because as a writer i think a lot of what you do is 
you know, you delve into something and then you pull back and look at it from a different perspective and then you have to go back in. There's always a kind of in and out mm-hmm. that takes place. Right. Yeah. Moving to England is not the first time that you've been crossing culture. Mm. You've really been doing it throughout your life. And it's a theme that comes forth in your writing. You grew up in a family with a strong Greek heritage from your mother and kind of a cultural, non-religious Jewish Mm. heritage from your father. So talk about the genesis of your interest in cultures Mm. and what Mm. keeps you interested in that. Well, I think that's, you know, I think my parents did a very good job when I was growing up of letting us think that we were totally normal to have that. when we, I guess I said, grew up in L.A., um, a very secular Jewish community, and we were considered Gruish, and that seemed like something I could be very proud of. You know, I loved my dual heritage. I loved the mix. Um, only later when I grew up, I encountered people who said to me, but you can't be both. Mm. What are you really? A lot of people on both sides, you know, my Jewish relatives or friends would say, okay, but what are you really? You're really Jewish, aren't you? And the Greeks would be the same way. Mm. And uh, I suddenly thought, wow, you know, I have this perspective that you can be both. Mm-hmm. And I think that's informed my perspective on a, in a kind of wider view that I am drawn to people and experiences which are which embrace duality or even um, even more than duality you know Mm -hmm. kind of the mixed meze approach to life you know a little bit of this a little bit of that Um, maybe with gender maybe with culture maybe with race or ethnicity I I find myself drawn to those kinds of artists and writers and just humans who have um, mixed perspectives, dual perspectives, multiple perspectives. I'm much more comfortable with the multiple than I am with the singular. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I can see that in your in your work for sure. Your first novel, The Priest Fainted, brought in um, a lot of uh, Greek mythology, mm-hmm. but set it into a um, a contemporary context. Mm. Um, what have you learned about writing since you published that novel several years ago? Yeah, so that novel I published um, without really thought of an audience at all. I wrote it mostly for myself and, as I said, trying to solve the problem. And then getting published, getting reviewed, um, having people write to me about the book or having responses to the book, that was kind of a shock. Uh, it was kind of like, oh, wait a minute, I didn't just write this for myself, other people are going to take hold of it. Like I I met an artist once who had taken selections from the book and then used it as a basis for her sculptures. And that was really fantastic, but also kind of strange. Like, well, it doesn't just belong to me. Mm. And so I think that afterwards, I'm sure this happens to a lot of writers, actually, there was a deep self-consciousness sense of the audience sitting on your shoulder, Mm. which is not helpful. Because, as I said, you have to be free to pursue the problem of the piece of writing wherever it's going to lead you. And I think for me, I felt very heavily the sense of the reader, the editor, the critic, the person who was going to receive it in the end. And I think for me, a lot of what I've been doing is trying to free myself of that. And 
I think what really helped was going back to teaching. You know, I took time off from teaching when I had kids. Going back to teaching, trying to encourage my students to become more free in their approach to their work, to not feel the editor on their shoulder, um, particularly in the early drafts. You know, I think we all have to consider our reader eventually, but I think early on it's important to have that freedom to just explore and have a relationship with the writing. So helping my students do that has helped me. And one of the ways I've helped my students is through reading about other writers. So I think that's also been really liberating. Mm. Um, I've understood my problems, not just as my own unique failings, but (laughs) part of the process that a lot of writers go through. And that has been very liberating for me. Right. So when you were thinking about that audience and and thinking about producing a a book that that audience would like, were you you thinking, well, you know, this one was set in Greece and Mm. include mythological Mm. characters, so do I need to do that again? Or how was it kind of... Or the opposite, you know, like I thought, well, I I wrote a book that was about mothers and daughters, so I obviously can't write about mothers and daughters again. I've got to do something completely different. And then I I started writing about something completely different, and then it ended up being about mothers and daughters. And (laughs) That's your topic. (laughs) I thought, oh, no. I think also I was very self-conscious about the autobiographical aspects of my work. Um, I was living in England. It was before the whole memoir thing took off, before our great friend Carl Ove and his work and various other authors now who are, you know, unashamedly autobiographical in their Very revelatory. Right, Right, very revelatory, very internal but when I did it, I, I was kind of embarrassed, abashed, ashamed, you know, mm-hmm. um, that a lot of the genesis for my storytelling was my own experience. Mm-hmm. You'd revealed a lot about I'd yourself. I'd revealed, right. Well, at this, yeah, revealed a lot about myself at the same time, kind of through the fictionalization of it. Um, really, my story became something utterly different from my own story. Right. I didn't really know what that was all about, and I felt like I'd done something wrong, (laughs) really. I wasn't a real writer. And I have friends who are fiction writers who are so wonderful at kind of escaping themselves and creating characters, and I always felt like, God, I wish I could do that. But So I think it was a little bit of a battle with myself, and I think one of the things that has helped me is to... Again, you know, see lots of other writers doing it and think, okay, well, this if this is what the story wants to be, like with my new book, Dear English People, a lot of it is autobiographical, and that's okay with me. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm not bothered by it. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that new book because uh, you've read a couple of selections of it at my backyard salon. And so we've, it's, it's I've been unfolding mm. in, in some public uh, mm, space. Right. I just wanted to know a little bit about the genesis of, of that project and what you're discovering along the way. Yeah, so that project, as you know, when I first started reading here, I called it my secret project because I was sort of nervous about what it was going to be and I didn't really want to pin it down too much. And so I refused to even give it a name myself. Um, but it has been evolving, and, it, and as it evolves, it seems to have a very strong sense of direction. And I think, um, like I said, it started with a voice in my head, and it was not long after the Brexit referendum. I've been thinking about wanting to somehow write about my experience as a new person in Britain or taking on a new culture, what that meant in the context of 
being married to a British person, what it's like to take on another person's culture. And I think that that is a kind of universal thing. Even if you marry someone from around the block, sure. you're still taking on their culture, you know, right. their, their family, family. <laughs> right? um, their background, their history, their points of view. And that isn't easy for us as human beings. And I think it's also kind of the challenge we're facing now globally as a culture. You know, we're all being asked to take on other perspectives. And I think that some of what's happening politically, to me, feels like a great big no to that. You know, like, no, I don't mm-hmm. want to have to take on other perspectives. I'm happy and I like my own perspective. Thank you very much. Right. It's threatening. It's somehow. threatening. Right. It feels like a loss. And so I recognize that. And at the same time, I want to explore it. So I think with Brexit, it affected me very deeply and emotionally in ways that were unexpected. Um, strangely enough, it made me feel more connected to Britain, even though I felt it was part of the country was really rejecting me specifically mm. um, and others like me. I also felt in the people who then came out and said, no, that's not who we are. We're, we don't reject the foreign. We don't reject the immigrant. You know, we want to be open to the new. And it was like, oh, you mean all the rest of you, the other half, the 48%, um, you've been here all along. And it gave me a new view of my adopted country, of Britain. And actually, it's made me feel, strangely enough, it's made me feel more at home mm. because I also feel enjoined in a battle for the soul of Britain. Mm. And uh, I can be part of that battle as an immigrant, as a new person. So I think all of that was sort of in my head. But then I just woke up this mor- one morning and this voice just said, you know, dear English people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, this voice had a lot of stories to say. So every chapter starts with that. It's kind of evolving kind of chronologically, but I have a a sense of the beginning, the middle, and the end. And that's kind of interesting for me. So I feel like I'm kind of trying to jog to get to the end. I kind of see where it's going. Right. And so the title, Dear English People, makes it sound like it's, it's essays, but it's actually a novel. Yeah. Well, <laughs> again, um, trying to be faithful to the story, I would say when I look at it, without trying to pin down what it is, there are some essayistic mm-hmm. aspects to the storytelling, but ultimately it is a story. Mm-hmm. So it's a narrative, um, but it has some kind of commentary. Mm-hmm which is probably comes from my essayist voice. Right. But I think uh, if I had to say, what is it? It's not an essay. It's definitely a narrative. Right. So, you know, it's like, you know, hybrid. Yes, it's a hybrid piece. <laughs> and I should be proud of that. Yes, absolutely. It's novel, right? It's new. It's new. It's, <laughs> it's drawing on several genres, we could say. It's, 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 it's got a mixed cultural heritage. <laughs> It's a gruish book. Have you felt compelled to talk about what's happening in, in your country of origin? Which yeah. Which is also going through quite a bit of upheaval? Yeah, because um, even though I'm living in Britain, <laughs> well, as my kids have said, well, we thought, we felt like for a little while they said, we felt really bad because, you know, for so long as British people, part of your heritage is feeling superior to Americans. And then after Brexit, they felt like they were the really stupid country, but they were so grateful that <laughs> Americans voted for Trump because now they could feel superior again, <laughs> or at least equally stupid. 
Um, but <laughs> I guess, again, of course, I think about what's happening here. I do feel like um, there are some differences in terms of America's history, what it's not confronting or refuses to confront um, in this kind of white lash backlash, mm -hmm. um, which I think is happening right now. But I guess the universality of it, the thing that I'm interested in is this idea of um, we all carry these ghosts inside us. We all carry this kind of history that when we encounter otherness, sometimes we are forced to kind of look within to our own history. And that's a very deeply uncomfortable process. That happens in marriages. You know, I think about that Alain de Botain mm -hmm. interview. Um, and at the end of that interview with Krista Tippett, they were talking about marriage as this personal confrontation with your own worst self and always trying to become your best self. And Krista Tippett said to him, well, do you think this might have some application to the political realm? And I remember um, Alain de Botin saying, well, that's a matter for another day, Krista. And I was, you know, shouting down into my iPhone, you know, like, but no, that's, that's exactly what I want to talk about. That's not a matter for another day. I feel like that happens to us on a personal level, but also like culturally, I feel like we've been asked to encounter the new, the other in this really big way. And that's terribly frightening. Mm. And I think there's some resistance to it. Um, and I think that's what I wanted to explore. I don't have the answers. That's what's exciting about writing. But I felt like I might have something to say about this. So I think I'm going to try and write it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look forward to seeing what emerges yes, as I, you continue to work on it. I'm so happy that I've had the chance to come here and read this. And I just want to say something about that because it's meant a lot to me to take this scary new project and then have the opportunity to read sections to a completely fresh audience and to feel them respond to it and mm. to have people come up to me afterwards and say, wow, I'm really interested in that. I really loved what you wrote. That has helped me so much. It's given me a lot of courage to go on, actually. And I think that reading here, the times that I have in the Backyard Salon, I, I think that's going to be a very integral part of my writing process, actually. So yeah. maybe I'll have a chance to come again as I get towards the end, and I'll, I'll read one more chapter. Who yeah. knows? Yeah. Fantastic. That must be, yeah. we are always, uh, you're always invited. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So I know that uh, the what what's happened in the political situation in England also has propelled you to do some new work, which is with Amnesty International. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I just wanted to to hear a little bit about um, what you're doing there and how that's that's part of your uh, creative life as a writer. Yeah. So I think that what Brexit really was a reminder to me. One of the things that made me think about was how privileged I am. And that part of this resistance, the new, I think, f felt like it was coming from people who hadn't been able to share in the benefits of you know, globalization the way that I have. I mean, I live in London. Um, my husband's an international lawyer. We've benefited very much economically and culturally and personally from being part of this wonderful global city. But I thought, gosh, you know, not everyone has had that benefit. So I, for me, it was an awakening. My kids were also getting older. I felt very much I wanted to do more with my teaching. I had the opportunity to go work with writers at Amnesty International. Um, I was invited by uh, someone who worked there to come and talk to them about their writing, and that has evolved into a consultancy position where I've been helping 
the writers there who were also researchers think about their own writing process, how to make it more sustainable, how to make it more pleasurable, to help them feel stronger about their own voices, to get their stories out into the world, not just in reports, but also in blogs and opinion pieces. And that's been really fulfilling and interesting work. Um, I've also started doing a poetry workshop at a local homeless shelter. I think my view was that I really wanted to help other people feel like they were able to find their voice and um, to do more kind of service work with my teaching Mm -hmm. and not just stay in the academy and teach uh, undergraduates, which is still very rewarding, but I felt like I could do more. Right. You've expanded from our early days teaching freshman composition. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) It's amazing how many of those lessons that we uh, learned in freshman writing um, still have power now. Yeah. Yeah, with different audiences. Different audiences, yeah. So I just wanted to wrap up with thinking about what you've learned in your uh, many years as a mm. as a writer and just as a as a human on this <laughs> earth, and uh, think about if you could give a piece of advice to your younger mm. self at any age that mm. you wanted to choose. You know, right out of college or. Uh, maybe an adolescent or maybe somebody in their 30s, your choice, um, what piece of advice would you give? Yeah, I think I would probably say don't feel bad about your mistakes and your failures. Um, You will have them, and that's fine. And um, the important thing is to learn from them and to use them as a growing experience. I think that I've... I think a lot of people feel the need to be perfect, to always be at your best, and um, it seems like other people have worked things out, and you're the only one stumbling around. And I think (laughs) that as a society, as a whole, we can do more to recognize our mutual vulnerability, um, that we're all vulnerable, and that for me, uh, being able to kind of stand up for my stumbling and to be able to accept it would have been really good Mm. and so what age are you speaking to yourself at (laughs) well every age up to now you know I could give myself the same advice but maybe it's something after being 50 I think uh someone said to me you know welcome to the age where you don't give a hoot well that's not the word she used but you know don't give a hoot what other people think about you I think that Um, maybe there's too much time wasted on what other people think about you. And I I think getting older has been really liberating in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, here's to a few more years. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) At least. (laughs) At least. (laughs) Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. Thanks, Di. I love talking to you. Thanks. That's it for today's episode. Thank you, Catherine, for speaking with me about your life as a writer, your creative process, and what keeps you excited and energized about this work. You can locate Catherine's books with the help of your favorite retailer and read her essays on Medium, the online publishing platform. If you haven't yet, subscribe to Real with Diane McDaniel on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Please let us know why you listened and what you like about the real podcast. Please rate the show and leave a review on iTunes.
follow Real on Twitter at RealThePodcast and reach out to us at RealThePodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Diane McDaniel. Thanks for listening.